And for many years after, my world got turned upside down from a life of an addiction to prescription pills. Now, I also did other drugs, I drank, but really what had its grip on me for many years were the pills. Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, Valium, Xanax, like whatever. I overdosed in Rocky Point, Mexico on a combination of prescription pills. My brother and my brother-in-law had to come pick me up in the middle of the night in Mexico and go to the emergency room and, and bring me home. And even that next day, when I woke up, I was convinced I did not have a problem. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode two of the Comeback Stories podcast, hosted by myself, Darren Waller, and hosted as well by the man whose story we're going to hear tonight, my friend, my mental coach, a man with an amazing story, a man with amazing character, none other than Donnie Starkins. Donnie, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, man. It's a blessing and an honor to be here with you sharing my comeback story. We got to hear yours in episode one. It will be a tough act to follow, but that's why we had you go first, man, because your story is epic. And it's just a gift to be here sharing my comeback story with you and the world today. Oh, man. Yeah, it's definitely a blessing to be here. You know, it's a blessing to be a part of this platform, be a part of this movement. As men, we don't uh, necessarily want to be vulnerable. We're taught to suppress things and not talk about them and not be vulnerable, but we're leading a new movement, we're leading a new frontier. We're going to do those things. We're going to be open and show people that there's power in that. And I'm just excited to get this thing going today, man. Before we dive deep into the fall of your story and the comeback, the, the rise again, why don't you give us a just a brief summary of your story before we really get into the segments of it. Sounds good, man. First, just growing up for me was like super easy. That's what comes up for me. I know in your story, we heard that it was confusing. And when we formulated these questions, and this was a question that I obviously knew was going to be asked, that's what came up for me. My growing up was easy. It was fun. So my parents divorced when I was around seven, but I don't actually remember much of those details. What I do know is that they always made the best out of a bad situation. They made it about the kids. They actually lived really close together, like oddly close, like in the same apartment complex for a few years. And I really don't remember seeing any drama between my mom and dad. And I'm super grateful for that. And as a kid, a lot of stuff came really easy to me. Sports, uh, friends. I grew up in a neighborhood where we were playing sports outside every single day and playing a ton of team sports, football, baseball, soccer, all day, every day. Once I got to high school, it was just baseball and football. My dream as a child was to play professional baseball and also to play at Arizona State, which is where my dad played baseball. So it was a huge goal of mine. And the more I talk about what it was like growing up for me, I realized how privileged my life was as a kid. And some of the happiest memories really revolved around sports, having a lot of success, winning big tournaments, and finding meaning, purpose, and fulfillment when I was actually playing. So I ended up playing all the way until my senior year at Arizona State, where I had what was my fifth knee surgery. And this surgery was a massive surgery. It was a 
cadaver transplant of my meniscus. I was the first person in Arizona to ever have this surgery. But the doctor assured me that if all went well, it would be like having a new knee and I would be back playing in no time. But the day that I woke up from that surgery, I knew I would never play baseball again. From the the massive signs and scars of trauma to the unbearable pain, I just knew baseball was over for me. And so from that day, and for many years after, my world got turned upside down from a life of an addiction to prescription pills. Now, I also did other drugs. I drank, but really what had its grip on me for many years were the pills. Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, Valium, Xanax, like whatever I could get my hands on to just numb out, I was all about it. And the the story, the Cliff Notes version of the story, a lot of bad stuff happened in my addiction. Not terribly bad where I inflicted a lot of pain or hurt, physically hurt anybody, crashed my cars into people. Like none of that really happened, but I did overdose. I know we have that in common. I overdosed in Rocky Point, Mexico on a combination of prescription pills. My brother and my brother-in-law had to come pick me up in the middle of the night in Mexico and go to the emergency room and, and bring me home. And even that next day, when I woke up, I was convinced I did not have a problem. They wanted me to, my family wanted me to go to treatments. They wanted, they were like, you have got to go to rehab. Your life is spiraling out of control. And I was in such denial then. I think most of it really was that I didn't want to stop my life for 30 days or 60 days or have that stigma about going to rehab. So in the beginning, I just went to, I went to meetings, 12 step meetings, AA meetings and NA meetings. And it was solely to keep my parents off my back. And so I would go into these meetings and my, I was, my mindset was so twisted where I would go in there and be like, I'm never going to be like these people. Like I was better than them going into the meetings. And so that was my twisted motivation. And I never heard anything. I never heard the message. I never heard anything because the whole idea of when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. This student was not ready. I was not done yet with my run with drugs and alcohol. And yeah, finally, when I went to rehab, when I finally surrendered, I remember lying in bed that first day and things had gotten bad, like just dumb decisions, putting my family and my friends just through a lot of pain and a lot of worry. And I remember lying in rehab that first night and just saying, God, please just tell me what I need to do to get it right. Tell me what I need to do to get sober. And I remember like listening around that day. And every night in rehab, two people would come in to host a meeting, whether it was an AA meeting, NA meeting, PA meeting. And night one, it was two guys that were hosting a PA, Pills Anonymous meeting. And they came into the meeting and they started to say things like, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps with that sponsor, be of service. And I heard it. I heard it for the first time. Now, I've been going to meetings years before that, and I never heard it. And so ironically, I'm sitting there basically in a foxhole prayer, first day in treatment saying, God, just please tell me what I need to do. And I heard it through the mouths of these two men speaking at the meeting. And I knew 
after day one in rehab what I needed to do to to get and stay sober. So it's just wild how I believe for me today, like God, higher power, whatever you choose to call it, speaks through the mouths of other people. And especially in, in the world of recovery for me, that's where I hear it. And that's where it speaks to my heart. So yeah, I've been sober. So I, and let me go back because I also, I had three and a half years sober and I actually had a relapse. And it's important to share this in my story because it's something that three years into my sobriety, I actually stopped doing the work. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped uh, working with my sponsor. I stopped sponsoring people. And ironically, I hurt my other knee um, playing sober softball. So by this time, I've had seven surgeries on my left knee, mind you. And this is just the first one on my right knee. Super simple procedure, meniscus tear, like you walk out or you're on crutches for one day. But I woke up from that surgery and I love the way that I felt. And six days later, I was back in the doctor's office lying about the pain, um, exaggerating about it so I could get more pain pills. And that sent me off into another like eight month relapse. And that today means the world to me, that relapse. Now, at the time, I was a lot, I was ashamed because I had three years and I was building up all this time. But that relapse today means everything because now I have another seven and a half years of sobriety on top of that. And that relapse reminded me that the work will never stop. I will have that feeling of neutrality. I can be free from the obsession of drugs and pills and alcohol, but it's all contingent upon my spiritual condition. And today that looks like meditation, service, talking to you, helping other people, practicing yoga. Those are the things that need to be in place for me to really be um, the best version of myself and live a life of freedom, not only just from drugs and alcohol, but emotional freedom. So that's a little bit of the the, the Cliff Notes version of um, what it was like for me growing up and really just how bad it got in my addiction. Wow. That's incredible, man. Just everything that you experienced, everything that you endured, the pain, uh, the confusion. You started off with so many dreams and aspirations and thinking that anything could be attained in your life and facing those obstacles and the, all the surgeries and the physical pain, the emotional pain, the psychological pain that you had to suffer through, man. It's incredible all that pain that you overcame. And we see that pain. We feel that pain now with what you just said. What do you say is an early memory of pain for you in childhood, something that may have changed you from that kid with all these dreams? What may have changed your perspective early on? Yeah. So when you phrase it like that, one of the the obvious ones was losing my purpose. Baseball. So the day I woke up from that surgery, senior year, baseball's all I ever knew. It's been my life. It's been my purpose. It's the love of my life. And one day it's completely gone. And I I did not want to feel the emotional pain of that. And at its core, that's what happened. Yeah, I got a, I got prescribed 80 Percocet a week for a month straight and the doctor cut me off cold turkey. Yes, I had this major traumatic knee surgery that ended up not taking, turned into a disaster. But at its core, when I stopped blaming everybody else, when I stopped blaming the doctor who screwed me over and my 
tell my parents saying that they don't understand. Nobody understands what I'm going through. When I got really honest through therapy and the 12 step work, it was that I didn't want to feel the emotional pain of the loss. That pain was too unbearable. I didn't have, I didn't have another plan. Baseball was everything for me. And so that loss, the void was filled by numbing out by taking, taking those pills. Now, another pain, another memory of pain from my addiction happens to be when my grandfather passed away. And this is my mom's dad. And the pain actually had nothing to do with the loss of him. It was really more about the regret of not being there for him or my mom in his last days on earth. Big part of that was really just being there for my mom. And I was, and I would tell her, I'd go over to see see him at his nursing home or at the VA, but I would break that commitment because I was in the middle of my addiction and I couldn't ever follow through and back up the things I said I was going to do. All my mom wanted me to do was go over there and give me my time, give him my time and presence and just watching baseball with him. But my addiction had my values all out of whack. And sadly, other things were more important for me at the time. It's something today that I do not beat myself up over anymore because through the 12 steps, I made an amends to him on Veterans Day after he had passed away. I was on a lunch break working a corporate job over by the VA and they were having this huge event on Veterans Day. And I happened to just drive over there. I don't know what took me there, but I went over there and they have these little quiet prayer meditation rooms. And I just walked into the event, walked into one of the rooms and just made my amends to him and said, I'm sorry I wasn't there. And I remember him saying, just take care of your mom. Just take care of your mom. And so that's been my commitment is to show up and be there for her. I say what breaks my heart more than anything in the world are the friends and families that get left behind when one of their loved ones dies from the disease of addiction or suicide or mental illness. And that very easily could have been my mom. It could have been your mom. Many of my friends, and I'm sure yours, are going through that, are waking up every single day knowing they lost their child. And we found a way out. So for me, I need to show up for her. I need to show up for her. I need to show up for my family. I need to show up for my friends. And when I do that, it's like a living amends. And as I do that, it releases the guilt and the shame of my past. That's outstanding, man. Just the way that you've been able to you know, take your pain, take your loss in the forms of the loss came in and to turn that into an asset, turn that into ways that you help people and inspire other people. And as much as you've learned along the way, how you stay open to learning and growing and just staying on that learning front, who did you learn from early on? Who would you say was your first real teacher? Someone that you know shaped your mindset, shaped the way that you may have approached life. Who was that teacher for you? For me, it was my dad. So when I think back, he kept me so humble. He taught me how to play baseball, to play the game the right way. Never let me showboat. I can remember my favorite uh, player growing up was Eric Davis. I, I love the Cincinnati Reds, and Eric Davis had this funky batting stance, and I wanted to have my stance exactly like his. And my dad would always put me in, in check. He would never let me like trot around the bases when I hit a home run. 
I even remember him trying to teach me how to, or to prove to me why switch hitting was beneficial to me as a right-handed hitter. And so I remember him being out on the field one day and timing me from the left-handed batter's box to first base versus the right-handed batter's box to first base. One of the benefits is it's a shorter distance from the left-handed batter's box to first base. And he was trying to prove that to me. And I was just a hard-headed young kid that just wanted to keep hitting bombs and not try to learn how to hit another way, which I had no clue doing. So I just think about how he kept me in check. Senior year in high school, I had some colleges looking at me and I remember having get, getting an earring at the end of senior year. And my dad like made me take the earring out. He always used to say, you never know who's watching you. You never know who's watching. So you have to play the game the right way. You always have to go 100%. And as I think about how my college career and how I ended up getting to play at Arizona State, that was really what it was all about. It was some specific games where people, coaches, scouts happened to be there. And I had good games and I played hard and it turned into scholarships. And so there were so many good lessons. He, after every single baseball game, he would always just come up, shake my hand and say, good game. Whether I had a good game or I had a bad game, that was, that's what he did. He was so consistent with it. There was no pressure. He wasn't living vicariously through me. So he really taught me a lot about the game but also the game of life and just really how to respect others. Taught me about karma, what goes around comes around. So you can't be an ass to somebody else and not expect to get treated that way. He taught me a lot of that stuff. And he was a great teacher growing up and I'm grateful for him. That's outstanding. I think that's about to me that you said are humility. Things that I see you, I see you walking in humility every day. I see you walking in humility and everything that you do now. You talked about effort that he instilled in you, the effort that you put into people's recoveries and the people's, you know, advancement from whatever their situation may be to where they want to go. You're a main part in that. And I know that your dad would be proud of you. You know, from that point, let's get into your story. Let's get into what really happened, what led to your fall, what led to the moments where you felt the most lost. And let's start with what do you think was the biggest thing holding you back? We know that a lot of things happen and in order for us to move on, we have to examine our role in it, examine where we could change, where we could improve. So what would you say was the biggest thing that was holding you back? It was me. It was actually me and my ego. It was actually a lack of humility, really unwilling to take direction. My ego was big and I thought I could do things my way. Early on, like I mentioned, I went to these meetings and I was like, I will never be like these people. My family wanted me to go to rehabs and I just, I wasn't, and I wasn't honest. I wasn't honest with myself and I wasn't honest with other people. I was really like living this lie to hide the shame and guilt of really what needed to be exposed. Like going from this baseball player star, like that's my identity to a drug addict. That messed with me for a while. That really did mess with me. And to be able to run from it isolate, run from my family. I hung out with people that were living the exact same self-destructive lifestyle I was. I was always, I always use the saying, your vibe attracts your tribe. And that can work positively or it can work negatively. And the people I hung out with in my addiction were caught up in all their own stuff. 
And so that just that unwillingness to take direction and humble myself, ironically, with you talking about humility, in the core of my addiction, I am not a humble person. I'm a selfish, self-centered person, and it's really all about me. And that's just the power of the disease. Those pills, man, for me, when I would take those pills, it was just, they had such a grip on me that nothing else mattered. I can think about when I finally got, when I got sober, like six months into my sobriety, I was all in, all in doing the work, doing the 12 steps, living with my dad at the time. He actually had a a shoulder operation and it was only like six months into my sobriety. And he actually had me go pick up his prescription pills for him because he saw in me that I was solid. And the 12 steps talk about these promises that will come true. And one of them is to have the, the feeling of neutrality or the, that the obsession will be lifted. And I remember picking up the pills for him and the pills just sitting there. And it wasn't like, oh God, I can't look at them. They were just that feeling of neutrality had come true for me. And it was one of the most, it was the greatest, one of the greatest spiritual experiences I, I had because the old me would have taken those pills. That's how, that's how much of a grip, a stronghold, those pills had on me. Even though my dad was in pain and just had surgery, I would somehow take some of those pills from him because they owned me. And yeah, I think just selfishness, self-centeredness, all about me. The fact that I would choose drugs over everything else and I, I didn't care about or worry about anything my family was going through. I never thought about what the pain and the sleepless nights my mom had worrying and praying, just wondering if her son was going to be alive the next day when she woke up. So really it was me and my unwillingness and my ego that was holding me back. It's crazy how we latch on to our egos, even when things are falling apart, even when we don't know why we're in a certain situation, we still want to believe that we're in control and we have these things in line, but no, we really don't. And we wish we could have seen these things before. I know I wish I could have seen these things before and it would have saved me a lot of trouble. This is part of our process. This is part of who we are and what makes you who you are today. Let's get to how that ego and holding on to that led to your lowest point of your life. Take us into the details, the feelings, the emotions of what you would say was the lowest point of your life. Yeah, you would think it would have been the overdose, but it really wasn't. I tried to do a geographic change and move to Cincinnati, Ohio. I have some really awesome family. My mom's Italian side of the family lives out there in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. But my, I wasn't doing the work. So my problems just followed me. And my addiction was in full force there when I moved there. But I remember being, and this is after many more just poor decisions and being caught up in the vicious cycle of pills every single day. And I remember laying in my bed in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the first thing that I would do when I would wake up in the morning wasn't use the restroom, grab water, grab a shower, eat breakfast. It was grab my pill bottle and take my pills every single morning because I would wake up with anxiety riddled in fear. And so I knew that if I can just get my pills on an empty stomach, they'll kick in 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And then I'll have like this, like this calm sense, 
this calm, soothing sense that will go over me. And now I can go deal with life for a couple hours until the pills started to wear off or my prescription started to run out. And it just was this vicious cycle that I got caught in every single day. I was hanging around in just bad neighborhoods in Cincinnati, Ohio, putting myself in harm's way because everything just revolved around getting pills. What the doctor would give me for more than a month would only last me a week. And I didn't have any real friends other than my brother who also lived in Ohio. And honestly, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't even be alive right now. I didn't have anybody and that was by choice. I isolated from everybody and anybody because I, I just wanted to hide. And I don't think anybody wanted to hang around me either. And especially when I'm telling myself, nobody understands for me, I'm the victim. So I can remember days like that and days like lying on my couch and my boxer Roxy out the, at the time would, she would come up and I'd be laying on the couch, just couldn't even get out of my house at that point. And she would come up with the ball, like nudging me, wanting to go play in the backyard. And I couldn't even get off my couch. And I can remember her just giving up. I can remember her coming up and licking the tears off of my face when I was just so bottomed out from this. And yeah, man, she was always there for me. Our dogs can really teach us a lot about unconditional love and always being there. And she was always there for me. And she passed away a couple of years ago, but she was also there for a good chunk of my sobriety. Her passing was super emotional because she saw both sides of it, but was always there for me every single day. It's crazy how in that moment you discuss, you know, feel like the pills owned you. You couldn't be yourself. You couldn't have any kind of serenity or peace in your life without them. And it's a crazy place to be. I've been there. Uh, a lot of people that are listening right now have been in a situation where they don't feel like on their own, they can manufacture the peace, the joy that uh, they want in their lives. And, you know, we get these narratives in our head, we, we these stories that we're stuck. We can't overcome. We can't bounce back. We can't come back. But that's not true. And on to the next question uh, about that story. What was the story that you had to stop telling yourself in order to tell your comeback story? The story I had to stop telling myself was I'm ashamed of my past. I'd made a lot of bad decisions. I'd hurt friends and family and caused a lot of worry and pain. And for a while was buried in that guilt and shame. My past actions caused just so much stress and anxiety that I would just numb out any chance I got. But I know today that once I own my story, I could actually write the ending. So I had to actually release the shame, which gave me an access point to a greater purpose beyond my wildest dreams. Like the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you and we're hosting this podcast called Comeback Stories and sharing man-to-man conversations that we have, not on these podcasts necessarily, but although we're going to have them, but in our coaching or just as friends, like real talk real intimate conversations, man on man. And to me, that is like absolute fulfillment for me. The fact that guys like yourself are changing the language, changing what it means to be strong, teaching everybody else that humility is actually a sign of strength and not weakness. It's unreal. So once I own my story and I started to share it, 
like everything completely changed for me. What used to bury me in guilt and shame, and now it's your mess is your message. And the fact that I can help others through a lot of self-inflicted bad decisions that I made, it still blows my mind today, but it also frees me from the past and all the, the negative emotions and stories that come with it. So if my story can help one other person, reminding them that they're not alone, I get it. I was there. That's why we're doing this podcast, right? That was the inspiration behind it. Yeah. Once we can learn to let go of that guilt and that shame, get that weight off of us and learn to love and accept ourselves for all that we've done, good and bad, that's when we can really propel forward. That's when we can spring into the life that we want into telling our comeback story and taking ownership of your story, man. That's what people need to see. That's what people need to hear. That's what people need to do. And I'm just thankful for you sharing that, man. I know from you releasing that shame and that guilt comes a new perspective. You become thankful for life, the little things, uh, you know, the people. Things just start to change and you become more appreciative. So I would ask you next, what are you most grateful for today? Mm, that was a smooth transition because, yeah, gratitude changes the way we see the world. And for me, so sobriety, number one, because without it, everything else goes away. All these amazing relationships, the opportunity to use my past to help others, the gifts and the blessings, they go beyond just staying sober. Like the obsession to drink or use, that's long gone. This is about being free and having freedom, emotional sobriety. Through the 12 steps, my sponsor and the work I continue to do in sobriety, I really have found a design for living that works and gives me that freedom, a freedom I had no idea was even possible. So I always say that has to come first. That is my number one. I write down and share and, and think about that sobriety every single day because it's given me a life, the connections that I've made. The fact that I'm talking to you, that's because I'm sober. We wouldn't be talking to each other if either one of us wasn't sober right now. Right. And so the relationship with you and some just other amazing people, men that would do anything for me, you're like way more than these fair weather friends I had that I was using with at back in the day, even friends I knew for a long time. You get into the rooms of recovery and there are men in there, men and women that will do anything to help you the, the moment they meet you because people did that for them. So really it is the gift that keeps on giving, man. So sobriety, family, this is everything to me also. They never gave up on me and showed me so much patience and unconditional love. And I put them through a lot during my addiction. My parents were so patient and maybe to a fault. I always say my mom is blinded by love. She was a decent enabler. But it's it was all out of love and just not knowing how to deal with an addict. But they were so good to me despite the life I was living. And they taught me everything about unconditional love and solid family values. And this extends to my fiance, Jamie, and my Frenchies and my extended family. It, that is really, family is probably second. And then yoga for me not only did it fix or heal my body, but also my mind and my soul. I started yoga and I'll backtrack a little bit in my story. My mom was doing yoga back in the day, way before yoga was as cool as it is now. 
And she would tell me like, I'm pretty close to my bottom when I was really struggling. I had a lot of physical pain because I was favoring my left leg, having seven surgeries. But even just growing up and playing, I was always ran with a noticeable limp because of the left knee. So my right hip really took a beating. My low back, my right shin would always have a stress fracture or shin splint from favoring my left leg. So the game, baseball and limping really banged up my body and yoga. My mom kept saying, you need to go to yoga. You need to go to yoga. And I would tell her, yoga is for girls and hippies. I'm not doing that crap. That was that hard-headed, unwilling to learn, right? Not, not coachable at all at the time. And finally, I went with her one day to some 24-hour fitness gym yoga class. And I was in there and I did it. And I knew after that one class, I would do it the rest of my life. Only from a physical standpoint. But again, little did I know what it would do for the mind and the soul. It, it evolved into wanting to teach. It actually, I went to teacher training because I knew I was going to do it the rest of my life. So I just wanted to learn. I wanted to learn the lineage. I wanted to learn anatomy and all about it. But once I got into teacher training, I was like, ah, oh, I got to share this. So it's given me invaluable tools, which as a teacher, I'm actually able to, to share with the world. I've been able to actually teach yoga all around the world. And the greatest gift that often sometimes I forget with yoga is the people I've connected with because of yoga. The amount of quality teachers and people that have come into my life because of the yoga platform, it absolutely blows my mind. The mentors and, and a lot of them have actually become my closest friends. And I can't forget my community, my students and my clients. I have had some of the most meaningful moments and conversations with my students. And I've been able to witness unbelievable healing and breakthroughs all through the practice of, of yoga and meditations. Yeah, man, sobriety, family, and yoga, that's really what comes up for me. Man, it's amazing to see how the gratitude that you have for sobriety and how it expands into every single area of your life. You, know, you have a new way to live. It expands and it gave you a new purpose. It gave you a new calling. It gave you a new opportunity to touch lives, change people's physical nature, their mental nature. It's just an incredible thing to see. With all this wisdom that you've gained, we wish we could have changed our road in the past, had these things on our mind back when we were in our lowest points. But on to the next question. If you had one 140-character text, an old original tweet that you could share to your past self with everything that you have, everything that you learned now, what would that one text be? 140 characters. I don't know if this is 140 characters, but I'll give it a shot. So know your values, live your values, love yourself first. Your mess can be your message and you're here to serve and share your gifts with the world. And also the only story that matters is the one you tell yourself. So I'll go back and break that down a little bit because knowing your values and living your values is something that is so important. I did not know my values. I never did a values exercise with anybody to understand what matters most to me. Values I know today are an essential part of who we, we are and they guide and direct and they can become a filter system for every decision that we make. When we know our values, we know who we are and then it just brings more self-confidence. We know who we are. We don't care about what anybody else thinks of us. And that was a big one for me that it still comes up today, but it's way better than it used to be. So worried about the opinions of other people. 
And when we know who we are, like all of that just falls away. And I tell this to a lot of my clients who are parents that you better know your values and you better live your values because if you're not, your children are going to grow up with no backbone because they are watching their parents not incongruent with their values of who they are. So love yourself first. I'm wearing the shirt again today. I have shirts that um, I sell that say love yourself first. I have to laugh sometimes because I wasn't taught this growing up. I was taught to push through the pain, never let them see a sweat. And now here I lead a retreat every year in Sedona called Love Yourself. I'm wearing a shirt. We talk about it, Darren and I, in our sessions about the importance of self-love, positive self-talk, not putting other people's needs before our own needs. And so making sure that we are filling our own cup first, it's really hard to give from an empty cup. Some people might think it's selfish. Oh, it's selfish if I go to yoga and don't take care of my family. I would say it's actually selfish if you don't go to yoga or if you don't go exercise or you don't go do whatever it it is you need to do to feel full. Because if you're not doing it, then your family's not getting you at 100%. They're getting someone who's tired, resentful, and depleted. So everybody wins when you love yourself first. And then your mess is your message. We've talked about that. That's why we're here. The fact that we can use our past and, and everything that happened with it to actually help if it helps one other person. I always remind myself, if you've seen the, the newer version of the Mr. Rogers with Tom Hanks, these Instagram posts and putting inspiration out there sometimes can feel a little monotonous to me. And it, it's hard sometimes to find the inspiration. But then I remember in that movie, he always said, I just look into the camera and I think about that one kid who's struggling and that's who I'm talking to. So that was my favorite line of that whole movie. And then it reminds me, it allows me to get over myself really quick and remember that just helping one person, being honest, not worrying about what anybody else thinks about my messy past because, hey man, if it helps one other person, then we've done our job. And then the last part I believe to my tweet was the only story that matters is the one we tell ourselves. And I believe that to be true because our thoughts create our reality. And if we're constantly telling ourselves we're not good enough, um, we're not good looking enough, we're not skinny enough, we're not strong enough, that's the reality we create for ourselves. But we can change that reality when we change the story we're telling to ourselves. So I would have loved to have uh, known that when I was a little bit younger, but I'm glad I've come to that realization today. Man, you are dropping gems right now. Um, know your values and live them um, your values if there's somebody else's values you're not going to be true to yourself when you have your own values and you know them and you live them uh, that's when your life can transform uh, love yourself first everything that comes with you the things that you think are good and bad all those things are working together for your good um, share your gift with the world no one can be you no one has the things that are inside of you no one knows what you know no one's been through what you've been through so you have to be willing to share that gift with the world and have no shame and hold nothing back because the world's going to be a better place when you do that. The only story that matters is the one you tell yourself. Man, like all these things are crazy. Your message, man, this wisdom that we gain is incredible, man. And I'm just so thankful for you sharing your story today. Before we get out of here, we need to show love on here. We show love to men. We show love to women. We show love to everyone that's 
you know, touch our lives in any form or fashion. So lastly, I want to ask you, if you had one person, who would you give your comeback story shout out to? So I'm going to give my comeback story shout out to Sean Korn. So Sean Korn is, to me, a legendary yoga teacher out of Los Angeles. She, for me, is the one that really made yoga make sense for me. Now, this goes back to a yoga festival, Wonderlust Yoga Festival in Aspen, Colorado, many years ago, and she was teaching a yoga class. And I I went to the yoga class, and she's um, holding these postures pretty long, and she just starts bringing the fire. Like, she is speaking to my heart, starting to talk about things that I didn't really ever hear in yoga. They were more like the classes I was going to were more physical less maybe inspirational and and spiritual. And she's saying things about resentments and understanding that everybody else is doing the best they can with what they have. And I'm like, is she in recovery? Like she's talking to my heart right now. So I go up to her after the class and I just had to meet her. And long story short, she begins to tell me that she runs an organization called Off the Mat Into the World. It's a nonprofit organization. They do leadership training. And a month from that time, she was hosting a leadership training in Minnesota. And I'm like, I'm there. So I get to Minnesota. It's a five-day leadership training, learning things about service and trauma and the mind-body connection and leading in our communities. And once again, she has a way with her words. And we're sitting in a pose, lizard pose, if you're a yoga. It's a deep hip opener. And it can bring up a lot of stuff because we hold a lot of our stuff in our hips. They say our hips are like a storehouse for just a lifetime of crap that we hold down to or we push down. And she starts saying, she says the words, how dare we not? How dare we not? And I don't remember what specifically she was talking to, but when she said that to me, it was how dare I not share my story? I've been teaching yoga for a couple of years. Not everybody knew my story. Some people close to me knew my story, but not everybody. And that activated something within me where it's like, how dare I not share my story? There's people dying out there right now. I know it because I'm seeing it. And so at the end of the training, we're tasked with going back into our community and creating a service project. So I created an event. It was a monthly event we held at some of the resorts out here called Sunday Yoga Service. I co-hosted it with my close friend and teacher, Anton Mackey. And the very first event... I shared my story. I don't know. There's 100, 150 people, maybe 100 people there. I'm not sure. And in front of everybody, I shared it. And from that day, everything completely changed for me. I found my voice. I found my purpose. People started to reach out to me saying things like, I was at your yoga class. My husband just died of alcoholism a month ago. Your class helped me heal and started posting about it. I'm not it's not important for me to be anonymous. It's more important for me to share my stories so I can reach more people. And that's just for me. And it just completely changed. It changed everything. What it turned into, like from a yoga career and a coaching standpoint, it blows my mind today. And and it was her. She's such an amazing person and such an amazing teacher. And we will absolutely be getting her on the show at some point because she has her own comeback story that's pretty epic and she speaks absolute fire to the heart so 
Sean Corn, I love you. Um, super grateful for you. Wow, Sean, thank you for the impact that you've had on Donnie. And Donnie, thank you for just being you, man. Thank you for sharing all that you've shared today. Thankful for your heart, man. Thankful for what you're doing to give people the power and the tools to tell their own comeback story. It's an honor to know you. It's an honor to uh, walk through life with you, man. And uh, just thank you, man. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, brother. The love is as much, if not more, for you, for who you are. And it's an honor and a blessing, like I said, to be here with you. And man, we're just getting started on this. So mm-hmm. I can't wait to see where this takes us. There's so many epic comeback stories out there. And hey, we just want to reach as many people as possible and remind everybody that they're not alone and they have their own comeback story within them. So glad to be here, brother. I love you. Love you too, man. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. We're here to tell our comeback stories so that you can learn how to tell yours. So keep coming back and we appreciate everyone tuning in. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned.